This is a Seven West Media Podcast. Hi, welcome to News Fix from Seven News. I'm Cyan Doherty. Thanks for joining me. Police raised banners warning they had tear gas to protesters to disperse. Hong Kong's airport authority has cancelled all flights. As the tear gas settles and blood dries on the pavement, Hong Kong is emerging from its 10th consecutive weekend of protests. Despite the escalating chaos and reports of violence, protesters are not backing down, and neither is Beijing. Hong Kong has just seen its darkest weekend in its contemporary history. So, what happens next? I ask freelance journalist Erin Hale and Hong Kong-based writer and lawyer Anthony Deperan what they think. We've heard a lot of reports of tear gas. Is that happening again now? Right now, uh, thousands of people are streaming out of the international airport in Hong Kong and also from the airport hotel. It includes uh, passengers whose flights have been cancelled as well as protesters. Um, It's very tense here as there are reports and sightings of police vehicles nearby. Uh, The going theory right now possibly is that police will wait for all passengers to leave and then they will move in and try to clear the building. Uh, Flights have been canceled, but all flights that are still en route or in the air at the time of the cancellation are still heading here and flights that had already checked in were allowed to depart. So there may still be people on their way, particularly from Europe or North America who will land Uh, in this chaos. Um, There is no signs of tear gas yet. Police have largely avoided using force in the airport. That included a three-day demonstration from Friday to Sunday and also another sit-in last week. However, there are signs that this uh, could be a little bit different, particularly as the police were sighted nearby and today Beijing said in no uncertain terms that it thought that Hong Kong protesters were, quote, terrorists, according to its Uh, Hong Kong Affairs Department. So it looks like a long night is ahead for protesters and for the media. Um, No one's quite sure what will happen, but um, it looks like there's so many hours to go. Can you give us a bit of background, especially as far as the airport is concerned? I mean, what's the story with Cathay Pacific? Last week, um, thousands of Hong Kongers participated in a citywide strike against the government, um, all related to the extradition bill and their lack of action responding to protesters. Um, those included at the airport, uh, ground control uh, crew, like air traffic controllers, and also uh, Cathay Pacific staff. Um, Cathay Pacific is Hong Kong's flagship airline, and you know many of them are based here and from here, so they took part in that. Uh, the order apparently came from China's Civil Aviation Authority last week, however, that uh, anyone who participated in that strike um, could not fly on flights uh, to China and possibly, uh, you have to check this, uh, fly through um, flights to go through Chinese airspace. So that's actually quite a number. It's not out of the ordinary for China to do this. It does uh, get very angry at brands, um, including Versace this week. Uh, Anytime they feel like their sovereignty has in some way been infringed upon. And that includes Cathay Pacific and major Hong Kong companies. Um, big business, uh, generally in Hong Kong, kowtows to whatever China wants. So that includes also companies in the West um, because China is just such a huge market. So they'll do basically whatever they say. 
um, in the hopes of uh, not getting blacklisted. Because once you're blacklisted, you know, like Google or the New York Times, you lose out on millions and millions of customers and also, you know, billions in profits. So it's very important for them. And the same is true for Cathay Pacific, as a lot of their flights do go into China. What's it like for you personally covering the protests? I think from a personal perspective, uh, it is uh, upsetting and, you know, increasingly difficult sometimes to stay objective in this story as someone who lives in Hong Kong. I think a lot of Hong Kong reporters feel that way because we're usually, I think almost all of us are embedded with the protesters, not with the police. And, you know, we really physically do see from the protest side. And then you have, you know, police accusing the media of creating a barrier protection for protesters and also um, not stopping uh, journalists from being attacked. Um, so for me, I am I'm very tired, but also very inspired uh, by the protesters and also, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, very honored that I get to be here for this moment in Hong Kong. I spent uh, four years here total in two different uh, sort of shifts. I was a student here and then I came back to work here. So I saw this from, you know, I saw the umbrella movement, the very beginning of that and watched that trickle out. And then, you know, Hong Kong just erupt this summer and it's, it's been a, quite a lot to see. And it's uh, very sad and disturbing to contemplate uh, what could happen to the city in the future. I mean, how do you prepare to cover something like this? It's so unpredictable. I guess I've pretty much developed it down to a science as to what goes in my backpack. Um, I always bring, you know, my laptop, extra chargers, uh, you know, portable battery, uh, sunscreen, water, you know, I have all those things kind of ready to go. And now um, everyone who's in the media also has their media vest, so it's bright yellow, uh, rock climbing helmet, and also uh, usually goggles and a gas mask. They're not, they're not always needed, but they are increasingly. And also wear, uh, I also wear shoes that, you know, can step on the glass or something because often uh, the street gets torn up where there's just a lot of stuff lying around. So you don't want to wear anything like sandals or, uh, you know, thin-soled shoes. Are you getting tired? Usually at the beginning of the day I'm pretty tired and a little bit crabby because I know that inevitably if it's a protest it's going to be a long one. I'm going to this weekend. I knew that it was going to be exhausting uh, and I was like, oh, thank goodness, you know, it won't be like last weekend where we had a three day, we had three days of protests through Monday and then that's exactly what happened. At this point, I think I'm just running on adrenaline and excitement. I think most people in the media at this point are uh, very tired. It's been 10 weeks of pretty much uh, nonstop work. I know even people working at major agencies where they have shifts and uh, extra help flying in uh, they're exhausted. Everyone's exhausted. Uh, not sure where I'm going to sleep tonight. Um, in sort of a very bizarre coincidence, I have some friends who are staying at the airport hotel here. They're on a layover to North America uh, from Indonesia. So if I get really desperate, I might call them. But um, I think I'll definitely be here for at least four or five more hours. Erin, thanks so much for your time. Hello, Anthony. It's Cyan from Channel 7 in Australia. How are you going? Hi, how are you? You flew in overnight from London. How worried were you that the plane wouldn't take off? Um, I was very 
concerned when I saw the news literally as I was on the way to the airport that Hong Kong was shutting down the airport and not allowing any flights out or in. Um, thankfully, I had a, an overnight flight which was due to arrive the following morning and I, I guess they decided that by that time, whatever had happened would have happened. So um, they allowed our flight to take off. But it was touch and go for sure. What was it like walking into the airport? Were there any protesters when you got out? Yeah, there were. So when we arrived this morning, there were still a few holdouts, a couple of protesters still there holding up um, various signs and a lot of banners and posters and flyers and stuff stuck up around the terminal building. Um, you know, the uh, the arrivals board had a, you know, a whole sheet of different posters and, and, and post-it notes and, and, and flyers advertising the protesters' cause. Um, and so it was still very visible, even though the, the thousands that were there yesterday weren't there this morning. And what is happening there today? I think most attention is probably directed towards this coming weekend. There are a couple of small protest events planned leading up to an expected big rally on Sunday to protest uh, police violence. And I think we should expect a pretty big turnout for that event this weekend. So obviously these protests started because of the extradition bill and that's been put aside. Why are people protesting now? Is it because of the treatment of the protesters earlier? Yeah, that's a big part of it. Um, people are protesting um, the, the treatment of the protesters, the characterization of the previous protests as riots, and also protesting the, the police behavior. There's been some very aggressive policing. Um, people are angry about that. Um, they're also angry about what they see as collusion between police and triad gangs who have been beating up protesters. And they want all of those things investigated. So that's another key demand of the protesters. And then finally, they are calling for broader democratic reforms in Hong Kong. Of course, because, I mean, the protesters aren't backing down, but neither is Beijing, right? That's right. And in recent statements, um, beginning last week and continuing into this week, Beijing's made it very clear that they do not intend to compromise. They don't intend to give any of the protesters key demands. And they've made it very clear that they think that all the demands are inappropriate. And even more than that, they've begun to describe the protesters not only as violent rioters, but uh, yesterday for the first time used the word terrorism Mm. uh, to describe what the protesters have been doing. And that, of course, is uh, a very alarming sign that Beijing is is really escalating this and and from their point of view that um, escalates the the tools that they're disposable to to combat what they see as now um, arguably as a terrorist movement. Taking a step back from what's happening now, in 2017 you released a book, City of Protests, A Recent History of Dissent in Hong Kong. Reckon you could write a few more chapters or even a new book now. How do these protests compare to, I guess, the protests of old? Yeah, it's uh, these protests are very much a, a, a continuation and, and have developed and built upon the previous protest movements, and in particular the Umbrella Movement protests of five years ago. So you may recall back then there were a similar pro-democracy uh, protests in Hong Kong where they occupied some of the key city streets for um, almost three months, um, and ultimately they were unsuccessful and, and, and the protests ended and the streets were cleared and the occupation ended without the protesters getting any of their any of their concessions um, and so now five years on the, the protesters have really learned the lessons of that movement firstly they are no longer uh, doing occupations instead of camping in the one spot for weeks or months on end they have a very mobile and agile protest movement they turn up as they did yesterday at Hong Kong airport succeed in shutting down the airport um, and then as soon as there's news that the police might be approaching they they leave um, there's no need to stand around that they see it and expand 
spend you know, time and energy and effort um, and tiring out the protesters by occupying a site when you can achieve your aim quickly with a couple of thousand people in, in a few hours and then move on to the next target. The other thing they've learned is to be leaderless. Um, many of the leaders of the of the umbrella movement, um, including you know Joshua Wong, who's mm-hmm. become a, a globally famous figure, and some of the other organisers of those protests have been jailed, and some of them are still in jail at the moment. Joshua Wong was only released a couple of weeks ago, and so they've really learned from that that uh, you know it's best to have a leaderless movement where, where there are no obvious targets to be arrested and prosecuted for organising the movement, and instead these protests are organised online through online forums, uh, through Telegram chat groups with voting, uh, through online polls, um, and then literally on the ground as a protest develops, people will talk among themselves about where they should move next, and, and, and they move sort of from place to place, deciding on the spur of the moment what, what the protest should do and where they should go. And so this is another way that they've really learned and developed from the previous protest movements. Um, but yet, at the same time, there is sort of a, a, a continuing theme through all of these protest movements that I think, at the end of the day, they're really about Hong Kong identity and about mm-hmm. Hong Kong wanting to keep its identity as a special place, which even though it is part of China, is separate from China. It has its own identity, its own culture, its own legal system, and in particular, these rights and freedoms that people stand up for um, and, and, and do protest to want to protect. And that's been something that's been constant throughout all of the, the protest movements in Hong Kong's recent history. Now, I hope I don't sound ignorant asking this because I'm not an expert on Hong Kong in any way. But from what I understand, in 2047, you know, Beijing takes over anyway. So isn't isn't this all inevitable? Uh, it's a good question. So the promise that Beijing made in 1997 was that the Hong Kong system and way of life would not change for at least 50 years, which takes us to 2047. It's somewhat open-ended after that. So uh, indeed, you know, at that point, Beijing could have the right to completely absorb Hong Kong and make it just like the rest of China, or they could, if they wanted to, you know, keep Hong Kong the way it is, really, and just keep mm-hmm. it going. Um, and, and that's sort of the really the big question. Um, you know, everyone knows that, that, that there is this ticking clock and everyone is looking at, at 2047 and wondering what will happen to Hong Kong at that time. I suspect that parts of Hong Kong will stay the same as they are now, the, 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 in particular the business aspect, the financial system, you know, probably the legal system, the banking system, a, a separate currency, all those things that make Hong Kong the international financial centre that it is, I think will probably continue after 2047. But the things that people are really worried about and the things that the protesters are worried about is the state of those rights and freedoms that they currently enjoy and whether they might be curtailed after 2047 to make at least uh, from a political point of view Hong Kong look a lot more like the rest of China at that point. And so in a way, yes, people have that ticking clock at the back of their minds and and one of the things they're concerned about now is whether the way the government is behaving is advancing that and that things that they were expecting perhaps only to happen in 2047 are starting to happen already now, some 30 years earlier than expected. Um, So this is really the, the cause of all the anxiety that thing that underlies these protests, uh, but as you say, the thing that may perhaps at the end of the day make it all futile. From your perspective, you've been there a long time, you're sort of an expert on this issue. What what does it look like China's doing? Because you hear them, you know, there's, there's troops waiting in certain places, the China's People Liberation Army. What does that mean and what could happen here? I think... Look, 
China is is um, certainly using the, the threat of the People's Liberation Army and, and featuring them in various propaganda videos they've been circulating over the last couple of weeks, I think, to try and put some, some fear into the protesters, frankly, and to let them know that, that China is serious about um, bringing them under control. But at the same time, I think you know, Beijing does realise what kind of an impact it would have on Hong Kong's status in the world and even you know, Beijing's own reputation in the world if they did bring the People's Liberation Army in to, to crack down on this protest movement. So I think at the moment it's more just a, a threat than a, a genuine intention. And I think that things would have to deteriorate really significantly, uh, way beyond what they are now, before China did think about bringing, bringing the troops in. But there are other things that they're already doing. The first, the, the first thing is just increasing the, the aggression of the Hong Kong police. We saw that last weekend um, with you know some very aggressive arrests with um, police disguising themselves as protesters and then sort of leaping on the people next to them and arresting them. Police demonstrated a new water cannon vehicle yesterday. They'll begin using that. So there's still a lot more tools at the Hong Kong police's disposal, which they haven't used yet. Um, and then I think they'll probably use the Hong Kong legal system to very aggressively, uh, to very aggressively prosecute and jail the people that they have arrested. And then separately, as you mentioned, there's this pressure on businesses. So pressure on Cathay Pacific, um, pressure on various other Hong Kong-based businesses to step out and, and make a public stand to, to, to say they don't support the protests and that they support the government. And, and I think that similarly, things like um, civil, uh, civil society organisations, um, universities, all these sorts of institutions will be called upon to, to demonstrate their patriotism and show that they um, uh, uh, do not support the protesters and support the government. And so through this sort of multi-pronged strategy of policing and policy and propaganda, I think Beijing hopes that that will suffice to, to bring the protests under control without the need to resort to the People's Liberation Army. We see uh, the uh, need for de-escalation of tensions. We uh, certainly call on, on uh, China to uh, be uh, very careful and very respectful uh, in how it deals with people who have legitimate concerns in Hong Kong. Foreign leaders are starting to speak up a lot more than they have over the past 10 weeks. I know Britain was basically told to shut up a few weeks ago, but, you know, today Trudeau's put out a statement. Scott Morrison today said this isn't how he would handle it. So what is the role of foreign countries and will they start to get more vocal? It's a, it's a really tricky position um, because on the one hand, of course, you know, Hong Kong protesters have been actively trying to court international attention. They had this crowd-funded newspaper advertising campaign where they placed ads in newspapers all over the world from the Australian to the Guardian to the New York Times and, and beyond. Um, and they uh, also uh, were uh, trying to... A number of leaders have been meeting with, with some pol political figures in the UK and, and the US, really trying to encourage foreign governments to, to speak out in support of the protesters and hoping that that sort of international pressure would have some effect on Beijing. But then on the other side of the coin, Beijing has really been using this for its propaganda purposes to say that you know, this is not a genuine protest movement coming from the Hong Kong people. It's trouble being stirred up by foreign governments in Hong Kong to try and turn Hong Kong into a problem for China. And in the context of the, the ongoing trade war between China and the US and, and the ongoing struggles that, that China is having in, in various 
various fronts with this international relations. It's a very convenient narrative for Beijing to use. So on the one hand, the international support is helpful for the protesters. On the other hand, it does somewhat undermine them. So it makes it quite tricky. But but clearly, there is a lot of international attention paid to Hong Kong. It's a place that many people have visited or, or worked in or have friends that have lived here or visited here. And so it's a place that is at the forefront of people's minds. And I think it does help that, that, that Beijing knows the world is watching. I did speak to one expat from Australia who told me, for him, nothing's changed at all. I asked what he did on the weekend and he said he went to brunch. So it hasn't affected his life at all. He thinks there'll be no lasting change. Is is he right or is he just, um, I suppose, separated from all the action? largely true that the protest actions are very contained. They happen in specific areas. Um, and if, as long as you're not in the area where the protests are happening or where the clashes with police are happening, um, you know, day-to-day life goes on as normal. Um, and indeed, it can even be a matter of just a couple of blocks away. You could have police you know, firing tear gas at protesters on one street and two or three streets away, people going about their business, having having brunch and having coffee and, and doing their shopping. Um, so it is, it is quite a strange dynamic like that. Um, and certainly we haven't reached any kind of, we haven't really seen any broad you know, breakdown in law and order that starts to make the city unsafe for ordinary people. Um, even when the protesters do have violent clashes with police, there's no property damage, there's no broken windows or shop looting or burning cars or anything of that nature. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really quite safe for, for ordinary people and hasn't affected daily life at all. Um, and I think that's certainly the way people like it and one of the reasons why the protesters continue to enjoy pretty broad support throughout the community is that they haven't um, disrupted people. And when they do, they actually apologise, which in itself is sort of notable. Wow. Um, you've seen them. Yeah, uh, we, indeed, we've, we've seen them, for example, after they've closed down government offices to go there the next day and apologise to people, you know, for causing them inconvenience, which is you know, quite a, a unique thing, really. Mm, yeah, I did see one sign at the airport that said, sorry for doing this, but we have to, or something like that. I thought maybe that's some remnants of British culture. <laughs> yeah, there is a bit of that, yeah, for sure. So what happens next? It's a, it's a really good question. I mean, I think things are pretty entrenched at the moment. Um, on the one hand, um, Beijing... in in its recent public statements has indicated that they don't intend to compromise on any of the protesters' demands. Um, They've made some statements that that suggest that they think all of the demands are are, are illegitimate and they don't intend to give ground on any of them. And, of course, they've started using this very harsh language to criticise the protesters, suggesting that they intend to crack down harshly. On the other side, the protesters also don't look like they're backing down. They're continuing to reiterate their demands. And with every weekend of protests, something happens, usually involving the police, which helps to stoke outrage um, and really provide further support to the protesters. So it's hard to see how all this is going to end. I think we're going to go on with this cycle of protest and crackdown for a number of weeks. Um, and I guess we'll see if, if Beijing's strategy of combining the law and order crackdown with, with propaganda uh, and, and sort of social pressure is successful or whether the protesters are so tenacious that they eventually force Beijing to, to give some ground. But at this stage, it's really looking like an ongoing an ongoing stalemate. So one side or the other has to win. It won't be like it'll just sort of peter out. 
I get the well. I get the sense that if at some point the, the protesters are cowed into into giving up and, and and going home or stopping the protests, that won't mean the underlying problem has been solved, uh, and it's just going to take the next incident, whether it happens in a number of months or or a number of years, for everyone to come out again. So it's one of these things that I think is going to continue bubbling away, either on the surface or under the surface of Hong Kong life for for many years to come. So is it the beginning of the end of Hong Kong as we know it? Um, look, I wouldn't be um, that pessimistic. Um, I think one thing that the last few months have shown clearly is the incredible spirit and resilience of the Hong Kong people, the creativity of the Hong Kong people as well, and the way that they've conducted themselves, and the fact that they really care about their city, their home city, um, and are willing to defend it. And I think that just goes to show what a remarkable place this is. And and I think that you're know, notwithstanding the ongoing political tensions, um, your Hong Kong is going to continue to be a, a remarkable place. Um, and I think it will also continue to be a safe place. Um, so I, I'd like to think that you know, there's still a, a bright future ahead for Hong Kong, even if it does have to negotiate this very tricky ongoing relationship with the rest of China. That is your news fix for this week. Every week we'll dig a little deeper and go behind the headlines. Please subscribe if you have a moment and send us your feedback to podcasts at seven.com.au. News Fix is produced by Seven West Media. Supervising producer is John Bach. Our executive producer is Nikki Hamilton. And the director of news and public affairs is Craig McPherson. I'm Cyan Doherty. Thanks for listening.